0: Good morning, please have a seat. Our preaching passage is 2 Samuel 21. It would be great if you can have that open before you because I won't be going worse by worse. Uh, it's a long passage, so let's pray and get straight to it. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. Help us to hear you clearly, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we begin, it's worth thinking about where we are in the story of 2 Samuel. Now if we remember, the story started with David establishing the kingdom and just as things were beginning to look good, we saw David's downfall because of his sin. That downfall translated into a downfall for all of Israel as it descended into civil war. as one after another, problems popped up. However, as the story progressed, we see the redemption of David and God being with David. Now, what we really want to see in this book is not just David's story, but rather we want to zoom out and see what God is doing for his people through his chosen king. So that's why we are shown how God works despite the failure of his king and how God is bringing forth his plans and his purposes. <clears throat> we learned so far about God's attitude towards his people, how he responds to his king, and how that has an impact on all of God's people. So this is more than just David's story. It's also the story of God and his relation to Israel. So we saw last week that the civil war has been put to rest, and now God brings other matters to attention that has not been dealt with. So it's with this understanding that we come to our passage. Now, the first verse of the passage opens with a famine over the land of Israel. Now, most likely, there has not been enough rain for long enough that they are in a period of drought leading to famine. Now, this would not be too remarkable in any other context. But if we look to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, you will see a hint of what is happening here, verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So we see here that even rain over Israel is dependent on God's grace towards them in response to their obedience. The Israelites depended on God for their grain, the grapes and the olives. So if we know this then, when we see that there's a famine happening, we would already wonder, is this famine happening because they have disobeyed God somehow? In fact, this should have been the question that David asked when the famine first started. Yet David waited three years before he finally wisened up and asked the question. And now, after three years, finally David comes to the Lord and he asks God, And the Lord reveals that there is blood guilt on Saul and his house for killing the Gibeonites. Now in the Old Testament laws, blood guilt is a very serious offense that happens when there is a murder of an innocent. Now there's even an indication in the law that the guilt of this sin is one that is shouldered corporately unless it is atoned for. And when it is not atoned for according to the law, God himself may step in to avenge the wrong innocent party. So the point of this is that this is a sin that's not only very serious, but it also affects the whole nation. But before we go on, we should think about who these Gibeonites are and why is it such a problem that Saul killed them? God told Saul to kill people like the Malachites. so why is killing this specific group of people bad? Now, you won't find much about the Gibeonites in 1st or 2nd Samuel, but if you go way back into Israel's history, the Gibeonites are mentioned in Joshua chapter 9. Now, back when Joshua was leading the Israelites to wipe out all the population in the promised land so that the Israelites can take over the land, the various tribes, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. The Gibeonites, who were in the land, however, decided that Joshua and Israel has been totally decimating their opponents so far, and so they decided not to join the rest of the gang in fighting Israel. They believe that the Lord God has favored Israel, and fighting them would be a disaster. So instead of hiding under the bed until the Israelites come knocking on their doors, they came up with a plan instead. They disguised themselves as if they were travelers from a distant land and they come before Joshua. And so they pretended, oh, we are travelers who have heard about the Lord and what he has done for you and the Israelites. And then they asked the Israelites, make a covenant with us. The Israelites, without checking with God, agreed to it. But later they found out that the Gibeonites have played them. They were actually people in that land. However, realizing they had made a covenant with them before the Lord they realize now they have to honor the covenant because God takes the word of his people seriously as we saw in our readings today so they agreed to honor the promises and the Gibeonites lived with the Israelites and served them they became water carriers and woodcutters for the house of God and Israel and due to their covenant Israel did not only spare them but also protected them. Now, about 400 years later, Saul had in his zeal struck down these people, despite the promises made towards them. In other words, Saul has broken a covenant of Israel made before God, and this is why God is angry now, which is shown through these years of famine. In a bid to look good and powerful before his people, Saul has ordered the mass execution of the Gibeonites for, for, who for all intents were not soldiers. They didn't have fortifications and weapons of war. They were people who lived with the Israelites, served them and depended on them for their protection. Yet, it was Israel itself under Saul's kingship that started slaughtering them. And the fact that Saul was described to have acted in his zeal shows us that this is not an isolated killing of a few people but most likely a wholesale genocide against the people. So now David understands the scope of the problem and he understands that the famine is caused by God's anger at the wrong suffered by the innocent Gibeonites. Israelites have broken the covenant and spilled innocent blood. So God is rightly angry with them. So David asked them, What can we do in atonement? Now David believed that if they bless Israel who have transgressed against them, then God will relent from his judgment. See, David needed to find a way to make things right again. Now the Gibeonites... They had no great wealth or position in Israel, and this would have been the perfect opportunity to ask for great riches, or at least ask for as many Israelites to be killed as Gibeonites were killed. This was their chance to ask whatever they wanted, and they had every right to say, for every Israel for every Gibeonite killed, kill an Israelite. Scripture says, an eye for an eye, right? This could have been their time for complete revenge. Yet you see, they respond humbly. They made no demands for gold and silver, and they even say they have no authority to put to death any man in Israel. Instead, they asked David to give up seven sons of Saul, and they also asked for judicial permission from David so that they can hang them to death. The killing of the seven here is a judicial killing, an act of the law. For the Gibeonites have said they have no authority by themselves to put an Israelite to death. So we see here that the Gibeonites are acting in a very godly way and showing restraint even in bringing justice. Now hang on a minute, Dinesh, I hear you say. You're painting them in a nice way, but didn't they just ask for seven innocent members of Saul's household to be killed? That is a good question. Let me draw your attention to their statement in verse 6. The Gibeonite says here, So that we may hang them before the Lord. So we can clearly see right, that their intent here is not so much for revenge, but it is justice before the Lord. The execution is done for the sake of fulfilling justice before God. And you will also note how Saul is referred by them here. He is Saul, the chosen of the Lord. Now Saul is rarely described in this way and by reminding that Saul is God's chosen king when he did all these things, they're indicating that Saul was acting in the capacity as God's chosen king. Saul has not only transgressed against men, but also acted in a way that brought disrepute towards God because he represented God when he broke that covenant. God takes his name seriously, we know that from scriptures, and therefore, we should see that this is a serious crime against God himself, which brings dishonor to his name. So by bringing such a harsh justice to this situation, the Gibeonites vindicated the name of the Lord and imply that God is not behind Saul's cruelty and covenant breaking. Because the matter is so serious, therefore the judgment too, is equally serious. Now, you may still be unconvinced because if Saul is the perpetrator, how can his offsprings be put to death? The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the sins of the father, scripture says in Ezekiel chapter 18. That is true. But let me bring you back to what the Lord declared to David in verse 1. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Did you notice that? The guilt falls not only on Saul, but also on his household. Now, we are not given clear reasoning for this. Perhaps they were culpable by allowing it to happen. Perhaps they have followed orders blindly. Perhaps they have benefited from their debts. We don't know that. Nevertheless, we see that God's judgment falls not only on Saul, but also on his household. Now, while we do not have perfect knowledge to judge them individually, we can trust that God, who is wise and all-knowing and just, knows the extent of blood guilt and how justice should be puzzled out. And if God himself has pronounced that the guilt is upon the whole house of Saul, then we should not put ourselves above God to declare that, hey, that is not right. So we see that David Acceded to the demands, he gave the sons of Rispa and Merab to be hanged to their deaths. Notice also that of all the means of execution that was available, they chose hanging. Now hanging in the Bible is a means of pronouncing a curse on the one who was hanged. By them being cursed, there comes a relenting from God as the demands of justice is met. And through this, through this then, The curse on the land is then atoned for and lifted up, as we will see in our passage today. In other words, these men were being offered up as a kind of sacrifice for the sake of justice, for the sake of atonement. God's wrath is satisfied by this, and he blesses Israel again in verse 14. Now, if this idea of a sacrifice for atonement and the reversal of curse seems like a shocking thing for you, it's not something you would see in our courts today, let me remind you of exactly how we received reversal from the curse of death to life. Adam sinned, and through him came death and the curse of sin into the world. We and all creation are cursed by this sin. However, Jesus who represented mankind. You can say he's from the house of Adam, right? The Son of Man hung on that cross. And as he did that, he who knew no sin was made sin. And upon him was the chastisement that we deserve. And God's wrath and judgment was satisfied by that sacrifice. So if we choose to see the number seven in the offering of the seven men to be hanged as a symbolic number, pointing to this uh, Jewish idea of perfection, because seven is a number that represents perfection or completion, then if that was perfection, seven men being offered and hanged, then can I ask you, friends, to look at Jesus who never sinned, who was the perfect offering because he offered himself out of his free will despite not actually sharing in our guilt and there we see a more perfect offering than even these seven men were so accepting this perfect sacrifice of Jesus the judgement of God and the curse upon us was removed through his death on the cross and we see from the book of Romans Jesus not only took on our sins, but he remedied the curse of sin and death upon all creation. God now has a right relationship with these people because of that. So in that sense, what is happening in this narrative here echoes that greater scale judgment and atonement that is played out on the cross. Now even more, another point that ties into our salvation is when we look at these seven people who were chosen. Now, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, was excluded because of the covenant that Jonathan has made with God's king. Now, Mephibosheth had every reason to be considered among those who have to die in order to appease God's judgment on sin. Yet it is only because he had made this covenant with the king, he's under the king's protection, he was spared to pay the judgment. In fact, another Mephibosheth takes over his place, right? Right in some ways then we can see how this mirrors our own escape from sin and death by being in a covenantal relationship with Jesus as our lord and savior so in some ways then mephibosheth finding security in the king he was pledged to is similar to how we find security in our king Jesus who has promised to not forsake us we live because Christ hung on that cross for us we don't have to be judged because we are in a relationship, being united to Him. So with that resolution then the story progresses and we see Rispa, whose two sons were hanged and were now being displayed to the world as a sign of God's judgement on the sin of Saul. And we see as she faithfully sets up camp and she chases away the birds and the wild animals. And she likely did this for a long period of time, many weeks if not for months, Because we see that the bodies have rotted to bones. And can you imagine that? She's sitting there and it's night, she's sleeping and she hears the growls of wild dogs or wolves. She gets up and she chases them away so that they do not eat the body. Imagine how difficult it must have been. But notice, she did not try to bring the body down or attempt to run away with the corpse to give it a good burial. And so in the way that she dealt with this, She showed honor to the dead, but at the same time, she did not seek to go against God's judgment or King David's decision. And so what she did moved David's heart, and he took it upon himself to gather the bones of those who were dead, and together with the bones of Saul and Jonathan, gave them a proper burial back in the lands of the tribe of Benjamin. And notice that this only happened once it started to rain again, which indicated that God is satisfied with the justice done. And so in Rispa, we see this godly response, even in terrible sorrow and suffering. She does what is honorable, but obeying God all the time, waiting for God's forgiveness to be declared before the bodies are buried. And God, through His King, then shows her His mercy and kindness by finally giving her rest from her terrible labor and closure. And the way the narrative is played out so far helps us to see the bigger picture that God is showing us, problem of David's sin and the rebellion it caused having been settled. Now, God is going back to the history of wrongs in Israel and He's tying up all the loose ends so that moving forward, Israel can be a nation that represents his purity and glory. Not a land still mired in its blood guiltness. And thus, while the problem of Saul's transgression is dealt with, his house was punished, we see that he didn't come by David's hand. There is no reason for further enmity between the house of Benjamin and Judah. David's hands are clean. So justice is done, but not at the cost of starting another fight between these two houses. And this is how God brings justice that leads to peace. Now then the story moves on, and we are in the second part, the passage in verse 15, and we see here that that while God has given people confidence that he has worked out peace from internal strife within Israel, the threat from outside still remains. The Philistines are back in town again, creating havoc, and leading Israel into another fresh series of battle. So David chooses to lead his people from the front lines as the Israel fight the Philistines once again. In fact, in verse 16, we notice that the bad guy that David is fighting here is one who is a descendant of the giants. And very similar to Goliath, both of them carrying massive spears. And we get the why. This is a spiritual rematch. David versus Goliath, part 2. And we may hope for David to have a repeat victory which will show God's favor upon him, give confidence to Israel. However, this time around, things don't quite work out. David finds out in verse 15 that he has become older and weaker physically. He's no longer the warrior in his prime and he almost dies in the attack. Now the contrast in tone is startling, right? Just a while ago, things were starting to look really good. You may be wondering, God is making peace. Maybe he's going to bring triumph and and bring something permanent into Israel now that David is good with God. And then, boom, suddenly, you're faced with the reality that David is merely a human king whose power and strength is waning. Seeing that, what hope would you have for the future of Israel? As David fought and in his weakness was almost overwhelmed and killed, We see Abishai jumping in to save David in verse 17. And so having avoided that close call, they determined not to let David go out to lead the armies. They decided it was their duty to protect David and they made an oath that David shall not be allowed to go into battle lest he falls and quenches the hopes of Israel. So if Israel's hope for peace and prosperity were resting on David and the victories that God gives him, This event shatters that expectation, right? Just when the Israelites may feel despair, we see a same phrase popping up again and again in the final paragraph from verse 18 to 22. And there was again war with the Philistine. Three more times it repeats and each time a Goliath-like figure appears only to be defeated by one of David's warriors. So it seems that while David may not be strong anymore, God is strong. And he gives victory to the Israelites. Abishai, Sebekai, Elhanan, and Jonathan each murdered their own version of Goliath. So does this mean David is now a has-been and is not relevant anymore? Is God showing on that he's moved on from David? Look at the summary at verse 22. These four were descended from the giants in Gath and they fell by the hands of who do we see here? David, and by the hands of his servant. Notice how David is being credited together with his servants, even though he didn't fight anymore. See, David is still God's king, and the victories are still attributed to him through his servants. In other words, we are reminded here that David's victory so far has, always, has never been about how strong David was It was always about how powerful his God was. So even when David is weak, it's not a problem for God to use others to fulfill his plans for David. God has set David as king of Israel. And as David has come back to God in faithfulness, we see God continuing to keep his promises to his people. He gives them protection and blessing, even in the face of terrifying odds. So this entire episode is meant to show us God's faithfulness in keeping his covenants, his promises. In fact, you can tie in this whole chapter into the idea of God's faithfulness. In giving justice to the Gibeonites through David, we see God taking his covenants seriously and disciplining his people for breaking their covenants. Then we see the battle scenes with David. Where he's a diminished warrior, yet we see God keeping his covenants by enabling others to stand up and support David. So we learn that it is in trusting God's king that God works out his promises. When David was weak, the answer was not to dump David and find a stronger king, it's to trust in God's purposes for his king and serve the king through that. God gives victory to his people for the sake of establishing his kingdom. Now, friends, in the same way, we too must trust Jesus no matter what our circumstances are. We are to serve our King and do his will. And as we do that, God grants us successes, not because we are good or we are strong, it's because we serve his King who's fulfilling his purposes. And it is the king's victory through us. God does have a plan for his people and his kingdom. A plan may look chaotic and bad for us. For example, look at what we saw today. If you're a Gibeonite, your people were massacred. If you're an Israelite, the land was in famine. If you're a soldier of Israel, you saw David almost dying in front of you. But see how God eventually works things out and brings good. God took out Saul, replaced him with David which later leads to David bringing the Gibeonites justice, restoring relationship with God. Through the famine, God brought Israel into repentance, into realizing and acknowledging their blood guilt, and through that event, put an end to Saul's descendants who may have entertained thoughts of future succession to the throne. When the battles came, David falters, but God shows to David's men that God is still in charge. He is the one that need to look up to. So for us, when things look bad, remember that God's chosen king, a more perfect one than David ever was, sits on his thrones now. Now, God does grant his people victory, but there will be times when you pray for things and you won't get it. You won't get victory sometimes over a sickness that you're praying for. You may not get your promotion, may not get the girl or guy that you're desperately hoping for, may not get the blessing and money that you're asking for, but ultimately in His King, God will grant you that victory because Christ is seated in that heavenly place. So friends, the world may seem to grind us down. The world may seem to be winning and Christians losing, But we can put our trust in God and his chosen king. Because God is powerful and we are his people. And he is a God who keeps his promises. So we trust him. And regardless of the circumstances, knowing that this ultimate victory is already ours by faith, we obey our king. We do the will of the king. Jesus has made that clear. He has called us to make disciples of all nations, to love God, to love our neighbours, and to be all that he has commanded. And so, church, you know what to do as you walk through life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks for Jesus. Thank you that we have a king that we can put our trust in. Thank you that you are in charge of us. So let us, Father looking to that ultimate victory that you have given us. Trust that regardless of our life circumstances, regardless of the failures and difficulties that we are going through, that you are in control and we are to obey your King in all things. Help us to do this, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.